0: Every so often, the CIA screws up. We have just taken the polar bear plunge into one such instance. Up to this point, the life of Colonel Lewis West has mostly kept to a single movie genre and that is drama. Let's review. Colonel West was the driving force behind the MK Ultra program and now you have been caught up to speed. If you need further assistance, might I direct you to my last two episodes on the adventures of Colonel West. Tusco the LSD Elephant, and the RFK assassination hoax, because I don't care to be repetitive. Also, there will be no beating about the bush this time around. It is the CIA owned media's job to create drama. But with the Patty Hearst kidnapping, Colonel West's life will become a spoof. Colonel West's life will become a spoof. There is a possibility that you are totally confused, which means we are already off to a bad start. Let me therefore ask you a question. You will need to save yours for the end. When we think of the MK Ultra program, which comes to mind? If you tell me butterflies, shiny glittering monarch butterflies, or happy magic bunny trails, then you would be correct. The CIA does in fact socially engineer people, both individually and collectively, molding everyone's mind into a certain beast image. Yes. That is Beast with a capital B. It is precisely why I woke up at 4am this morning and got straight to work polishing my sledgehammer, code word for this episode, because walls need to come down. Unconscious slaves need woken from the corporate hamster wheel and their Starbucks mocha latte. It should also be noted that a great deal of this episode is influenced by an earlier report by Miles Mathis, whereas I came to many of the same conclusions. In your response, You may have also murmured something to the effect of Manchurian Candidate, that is, someone who is mind controlled by the CIA to do their dirty bidding, like assassinating a president. We often look to lone assassin Lee Harvey Oswald and come to such conclusions. Somebody was pulling his strings. The same thought came to mind with Jack Ruby and Sirhan Sirhan, both of whom Colonel West interviewed in prison. Was Colonel West their handler? Perhaps. We are only teased but never told. Charlie Manson is another great example. West again. With Patty Hearst, we are given a Manchurian candidate prototype without the CIA's involvement, or so we're led to believe. Before this is over, you shall see why that is an incorrect conclusion to make. The CIA is involved, but that is also a misdirection. Why do we believe being a Manchurian candidate is even a thing? Simple. Because best-selling author Richard Condon and the government told us to think it is. We sat under the table while they fed us the breadcrumbs and informed our thinking. But we have been silly hounds. All they managed to do was throw us off their scent and cause us to howl like naughty things at the television, believing it was a real ordeal. Patty Hearst, as a manipulated tool of a home-brewed terrorist organization via the CIA, is just a PSYOP within a PSYOP within another PSYOP. Peel back the onion layers and you shall see it for yourself. The mere fact that everyone involved is clearly an actor threatens to expose everything about the MK Ultra myth. There are no lone nut assassins, only people pretending to be. Here's something else of interest that will come a little later on down the turnpike, so pay attention. In 1972, California Governor Ronald Reagan approved Colonel Lewis West's UCLA Violence Project. The idea was to implant electrodes and remote monitoring devices in the brains of violent sex offenders at Vacaville State Prison. Why is Vacaville a red flag? Because it has a fake wing for fake prisoners. Are there real prisoners at Vacaville? Obviously, but not in the fake wing. Manson resided there for a time and so did Donald DeFreeze neither of them were real. Bobby busell is serving a life sentence at Vacaville. Timothy Leary spent time there too. You'll want to take note on how the official narrative seeks to inform our perceived reality via politics and the media, when in fact we are often treated to elaborately designed movie sets. The UCLA violence project was quickly discontinued due to public outcry. See what they did there? Democracy wins. The people's voice matters. The thing is, West was on the CIA payroll, pushing the MK Ultra program. The American public wouldn't even begin to unravel the MK Ultra program for another decade. And that was only because, as I have already mentioned, the CIA began feeding us the breadcrumbs. To put this in slightly different terms, the CIA does not need public approval for anything. They will spy on us and infringe on our rights, in whatever way pleases them. The most probable scenario is one in which the CIA leaked their plans to implant fake electrodes on fake prisoners in a CIA movie set while West continued unimpeded in his research. It all serves a purpose. Understanding the hoax will require acquainting oneself with the mere fact that Patty Hearst was a Hearst. Her grandfather was none other than newspaper tyrant William Randolph Hearst. If you don't know who that is, then stop everything right at this very minute and watch Citizen Kane. This is something you should have already done in college during your film snobbery phase when Igmar Bergman or Lenny Riffenstahl suddenly became all the rage. But if not then I will wait. I am assuming that several hours have passed between the last sentence and this one. You are capable of tracking down a copy on VHS and also a VHS player and probably have all sorts of questions now about Rosebud which will not be further discussed in this paper. Citizen Kane has been listed as the greatest film of all time for a reason. It was made by Spook Orson Welles through RKO Pictures, which was the film company of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. Yeah, John and Bobby Kennedy's father ran a Hollywood studio. Here's a little extra review, just to catch you up to speed. Kennedy and Hearst worked together creating the fake news story surrounding the rape of Eunice Pringle by Alexander Pantagis a hoax which she later confessed to. To this day, the AFI lists Kane as the greatest movie in history because, right alongside The Wizard of Oz and The Graduate, they only invest in Hollywood's best propaganda. Obviously, they desperately want you to watch this one in order that the cognitive dissonance might seep further down, binding the soul to their will. So, you will have to starve the temptation off. Of course, Hearst wouldn't have been a Hearst without first being related to mommy and daddy Hearst. Patty's great grandmother, Phoebe Hearst, once sat as Berkeley's first lady regent. Place a bookmark there. She served on the board from 1897 until her death in 1919, which happened to coincide with the worldwide Spanish flu outbreak, influenza. That was another lie which you can read about on Cosmology. It's called the Germ Theory Hoax. The Wikipedia informs us that Phoebe was an American philanthropist, which is code word for someone who spreads their money around in order to gain plebe favor when in fact they're parroting spook ideas into the collective consciousness. For example, Wiki quickly adds, she was a feminist and suffragist. Of course she was. This probably has something to do with why every corner of Berkeley is named after Hearst. Hearst Mining Circle. Hearst Memorial Gymnasium, Hearst Greek Theater, Hearst Avenue. You get the picture. They're telling you something. Berkeley received millions of dollars from Phoebe Hearst. And what agenda did she push? Feminism. Philanthropist. It will be on the test. From this we can easily deduce that William Randolph Hearst received his newspaper Empire from Mommy and Daddy. Daddy George Hearst was a U.S. Senator. Like any spoiled inheritor, William Randolph Hearst's sole responsibility was not running his newspaper business into the ground, which he eventually did. And here's another fun fact. Just one year after founding the PTA in 1897, the very year she sat down on the Berkeley board, Phoebe Hearst joined the Bahai faith in order to advocate the essential worth of all religions and the unity of all people. New world order stuff, but you probably wouldn't be interested. At any rate, the name Hearst once carried the weight of a publishing empire. William Randolph Hearst was the Ted Turner or Rupert Murdoch of his day, but much more of a household name. His flagship papers were the San Francisco Examiner and the New York Journal. What this means is, Hearst had his power paws dipped into the tidal waters of both coastlines, east and west. He was best known for yellow journalism, which essentially signifies a media art form Whereas reality takes a backseat to emotion and leads its reader into a conglomerate stew pot of perceived reality. Essentially, an entire lifetime supply of big pharma approved blue pills for only 5 cents per day. Hearst routinely focused upon sensationalism. He faked interviews. He ran phony pictures and distorted real events. He essentially invented stories. And he did it to sell newspapers. Yellow journalism. None of this is being contested anymore. If anyone has ever visited Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California, and I have, it's apparent that the man sold newspapers. Let's take a brief glimpse into the primeval tactics of yellow journalism. I have included in the article the illustration of an American woman being stripped search on board American steamers by dirty Spaniards. In the illustration, she's buck naked. If you're not reading the article, then I'll let you use your imagination. It's not hard to do. Clearly, the event being imagined here never happened. But try explaining that or arguing with blue pill popping newspaper guzzlers at the turn of the 19th century. Masterfully planned stage events like September 11th and COVID-19 or conspiratorial psyops like QAnon just go to show how sophisticated yellow journalism has become today. Hearst's greatest claim to fame arrives with the sinking of the USS Maine, by which he coined the phrase, Remember the Maine. Very few people today remember the Maine, probably due to the fact that the Spanish-American War was an embarrassing blip in history. Kind of like the War of 1812. Not even Illuminati-approved textbooks want to teach that dribble. Sure they do teach it, sparingly, but only to lay the truth out in plain sight. That people in the past have been lied to, but not you. Oh no, CIA spook Anderson Cooper would never lie to you. In short, the Maine was sunk under unknown circumstances in Havana Harbor, Cuba. Its sinking was blamed on Spain in order to start a war. The Morning Journal's daily circulation increased above the 1 million mark after the sinking of the Maine. Hearst was such a success at provoking American outrage against Spain that the Spanish-American War was dubbed the Journal's War. Again, truth in plain sight, Frederick Remington, the famous artist who brought to life American images of the American West, plants a red flag on that one, was hired by Hearst for the sole purpose of illustrating the revolution erupting in Cuba. Why did I plant a red flag over imagined sketches of the American West? Immediately hereafter, you shall see why. One day in January 1897, an entire year before the main bust opened in the harbor, Remington reportedly wrote back to Hearst and said, Everything is quiet. There is no trouble. There will be no war. I wish to return. Hearst reportedly responded, Please remain. You furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. Again, this was an entire year before the USS Maine exploded in a Cuba harbor. When the USS Maine eventually sunk on the 25th of January, 1898, Hearst's newspaper ran a story entitled, the warship main was split in two by an enemy's secret infernal machine. This was, of course, the weapons of mass destruction of its day, decades before they came up with the comic book friendly atomic bomb hoax. Another fact that you'll want to scribble into your notes is that the sinking of ships is a favorite false flag tactic. Does the RMS Lusitania ring a bell? How about the Gulf of Tonkin? Declarations of war through the art of ship sinking is the equivalent of kidnapping a buxom babe in ancient times. That will be on the test. Imagine if Kim Jong Un held Kim Kardashian hostage. Homer's Iliad plays out like a textbook for people in the know. It was Helena Troy who was kidnapped that time around, though they gave you the truth in The Prince's Bride. We need only glance over the following century to learn that milking the tits of Cuba became a CIA obsession. Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis. Castro was just another actor on a CIA soundstage. The director was a hired gun. His purpose was to keep the Cold War sizzling on the frying pan until they could hype up the space race in the forefront of everyone's mind. Even the collapse of the Soviet Union was all faked. The mere fact that Russia didn't contest the fake Apollo 11 moon landing, when the case could have easily been made, should prove to you that the entire world is locked in the same movie script. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. Hopefully, I have covered William Randolph Hearst to your satisfaction. If not, then might I suggest doing your own research, because we are back on the subject of his granddaughter again, Patty slash Tanya. On November 4th, 1974, American media guzzlers received word that Patty Hearst, granddaughter of newspaper tyrant William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped from her Berkeley apartment. The people responsible were a group who dubbed themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army. On April third, 1974, only two months after she was abducted, Hearst announced on audio tape that she had joined the SLA and taken the name Tanya. And then it really happened. On April 15, 1974, a popular week for hoaxes and psyops, mind you, and only two weeks after announcing her name change, Tanya Hurst was recorded on surveillance video with her SLA posse robbing a San Francisco bank while wielding an M1 carbine. Her capture, or was it her rescue, would not come until September, but they managed to drag the trial out until March 20, 1976, because the American media guzzlers were totally into it. Hurst was convicted of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony, and given the maximum sentence possible of 35 years imprisonment. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, you may want to hold on to something, because this is the part where I remind you that the kidnapping of Patty Hearst wasn't so much a hoax as a spoof. Sure, it was a production, but a terrible one at that. We're talking the Brady Bunch of family sitcoms and the Gilligan's Island in the castaway genre. This is basically like watching a Mill Brooks movie Spaceballs or Robin Hood Men in Tights and coming to the conclusion that the comedy is the real thing rather than the original product they were based upon. Actually, now that I think about it, that was the plotline to the Star Trek spoof movie Galaxy Quest. Its plot centers upon aliens who watch Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, and Alan Rickman religiously on their televisions never putting it together that they're actually worshiping actors on a movie set. This time around, it's almost like the boys down at Langley were taking bets on how far they could push a Hollywood production and pass it off as reality without letting their viewers in on the fact that they've been duped. And it hasn't aged well as new stories go. Perhaps that is why they no longer talk about it. Oh sure, they'll push a fairly decent nostalgic reminder on us every so often whenever the five-year anniversaries of D-Day or Woodstock roll around, but when was the last time anyone saw anything about the Patty Hearst kidnapping? Patty's transition to Tanya included being locked in a closet, beaten, threatened on pain of death, and then repeatedly raped. Total humiliation. The airman coerced to admitting American crimes in a Korean prison was apparently staying in the Hilton compared with Hearst's deplorable conditions, according to Colonel West's analysis. Just looking at pictures of Patty Hearst online after she was released from prison, does this look like the sort of woman who has just been robbing banks and hiding in squalor? The very name Tania is a reference to Haiti Tamara Bunky Bider who fought with Latin American revolutionary Che Guevara. Patty thought that up while blindfolded and repeatedly raped in a closet? Right. While being booked into jail, Tanya Hearst listed her occupation as urban gorilla. How adorable. Also, Hurst's weight had dropped to 87 pounds, so she was certainly dedicated to her role. We are reminded of Tom Hanks in Castaway, which, come to think of it, was the better of the Castaway movies. Feel free to pause this episode and take a look at her mugshot online. Looking at this mugshot and we are forcibly pressed to consider if she were running a makeup test for her latest starring role, sharing the spotlight with screen actor Rudolph Valentino. We are being serious and not at all facetious. I would know a thing or two about mugshots because, back in my poetry days, when I aspired to live life under a pier and wrote some thousand carefully crafted poems which no one ever read, I carefully researched dozens of celebrity mugshots for one such poem which included the likes of Nick Nolte and Mel Gibson, and they look nothing like this. Rich Hollywood millionaires who climb behind the wheel while sloshed look worse than what we're given. Is this the sort of person who just spent several months crammed into crawl spaces huddling money bags? And what is she standing in front of? Is that Clark Gable's bedpost or the grand organ of Lee Irwin? It's incredibly difficult to tell. It is during Hearst's trial when Colonel Lewis West comes back around into the narrative. West was appointed by the court as a brainwashing expert. And why would he not be? We are dealing with a franchise. If you're the chimp clapping away on the typewriter in a back room at Langley, you want to bring everyone's favorite prison cell interrogator into the script. It is important to keep the MK Ultra theme running strong. But this is also where the monkey really messed up. West makes an appearance in the movie and then concludes that Hearst displayed all the classic signs of coercion, brainwashing, and the Stockholm effect. You see what he did there? He recycled one of his own one liners, just as he had with Jack Ruby and Sirhan Sirhan, which was ultimately intended to turn the barrel of the gun upon the reader. The only brainwashing was of the American people. Classic West maneuver. Dr. Margaret Singer and West swam in the same circles, and so we should not be surprised to be spoon-fed a double dosage. Singer evaluated Hearst in October of 1975 and concluded that she was a low-IQ, low-effect zombie. More American public forecasting, I shouldn't wonder. Her IQ was apparently measured as 112, whereas it had previously been 130. She was smoking heavily, plagued with nightmares, but also... There were huge gaps in her memory regarding her pre-Tanya life. How this was accomplished by Donald DeFreeze and his merry men slash urban guerrillas, we are not told. Those on the CIA payroll simply deal the deck, and it's the hand we've been given. But it gets better. Colonel West then wrote a newspaper article after the trial asking President Carter to release Hearst from prison. Carter liked to make a guest appearance in these psychodramas, hoping to boost his reputation, though that didn't work out so well during the Iran hostage crisis. Hearst was released. Earlier on, a couple of episodes ago, we saw how West was instrumental in the Summer of Love PSYOP. This is important, as I have already discovered another trail of breadcrumbs leading from that PSYOP to this one. After being kidnapped from her Berkeley apartment by the Symbionese Liberation Army, Haight Ashbury is one of the locations where Patty Hearst was kept during her captivity. The world is a big place, probably far larger realm than we're told, and Hearst might have been carted off anywhere. But what is the point in that when the CIA is once again capable of leaving their calling card? Sure, the Symbionese Liberation Army moved around to different apartments, all of which the CIA undoubtedly bankrolled, but the one in the height has for its address 1235 Masonic Street. Jim Jones and Charles Manson both showed up in the proximity, which is essentially to say, if you wanted to be recruited into the services of the Washington DC phallus, then Haight-Ashbury in 1967 was the right place and time. Oh, and also an appointment at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic with Dr. West. The founder of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and person responsible for Hearst's kidnapping is somebody named Donald DeFreeze. We should get to know him better. But first, do me a favor and hunt down a phone book. Find the DE page and report back when you can identify anybody with the name DeFreeze. Or you can just save yourself the effort and rest soundly on your pillow tonight knowing it's a made up name. DeFreeze is another word for defrost as in there's too much frost, DeFreeze the freezer or in R-rated 1970 terms, let's heat some mother effers up and nuke this joint. You get the idea. DeFreeze first shows up while escaping from a fake prison and then finds the girl he's looking for on 123 Masonic Street. We're dealing with a Batman villain. A web search will produce three different images of Donald DeFreeze. You may want to pause here again and go search for them. Notice anything strange about them? Take as long as you need. As a child, Sometimes while sitting near the fish tank in the dentist's office, I used to pore over highlights magazines for children. They have those page size illustrations where you were supposed to find silly things wrong with the picture. There are several to be found here. I will simply list them as picture number one, two, and three. If you're listening in, then you will have to use your imagination. In picture number one, we see DeFreeze poised as a badass with his leather overcoat and pimpin floppy hat. He is standing in a San Francisco bank. This is likely the moment when he screams something to the effect of, get ready to thaw out, bitches. In picture number two, we shall disregard the limp hand holding the pistol because it's somewhat incriminating for a wannabe criminal, except to say it would be a silly thing to holster the automatic weapon in order to retrieve a limp pistol. And therein lies the problem. What happened to DeFries's right hand? He was holding the automatic a moment ago, But now suddenly his right hand is tucked into his pocket and the weapon is protruding out from his leather overcoat. Also, his face has been artificially smudged. His nose is missing. If you argue that pictures 1 and 2 are in reverse order, it's really irrelevant when we consider the third image. With picture number 3, silliness abounds. Patty Hearst can be seen on the far right. Patricia Solisic is also featured. But then, take a look at DeFreeze's automatic and compare it with the first two. A shoulder strap suddenly appears near the muzzle of the gun. It is clearly absent from picture number one. I highly recommend you turn to the article on Cosmology to see what I'm talking about. The only other images I found of Donald DeFries happen to come from the 1988 movie Patty Hurst which stars Ving Rhames as DeFries. Like the actual bank robbery, DeFreeze's girls are all dolled up for the occasion. How adorable. There is an obvious reason for that. I would not rob a bank because that is against the law. But if I did, I would be sure to wear a ski mask or leave behind no witnesses. Contrarily, it only makes sense that they wouldn't wear a mask. Before they even set out for the performance, DeFreeze probably waited around an extra 20 minutes while the girls powdered their nose. Am I detecting eyeshadow? That is because we're witnessing a CIA created psyop with the barrel of the gun pointed at the television viewer. If the actual actors playing the part of Terrace had not been openly identified and Hearst not recognized by her intended audience, then the points of this exercise would have been lost. We are intended to gaze into the face of a teenage woman and compare the before and after effects of someone who has misplaced their soul. The other founding members of the SLA have no humanity to lose. They're just walk-on cast members intended to elevate the performance of their leading lady. When Donald DeFries and five other founding members of his guerrilla army were killed on May 17, 1974, in a shootout with the LAPD that was broadcast live on television, wink wink, they rarely, if ever, bother to tell you their names. Except for DeFries. We all know about that invented name. Somebody down at the water cooler was undoubtedly proud of their character creation. In practically any other article that I can pull up, the rest are just the five other people killed. Meanwhile, DeFreeze's corpse was so badly burned it could not be identified. Convenient. How do you actually go about burning somebody's corpse so badly in a police shootout that it cannot be identified? Not even by a CSI unit. Did they burn his teeth to ash too? Were there no dental records to be found at Vacaville? They don't expect you to worry about the little details. The important plot point is that Patty Hearst escaped the firefight, of course she did, eventually landing in the hands of the American government, the media, science, and psychologists, thereby regaining her humanity back. This is the moral of the story. Remember who it is that made Patty Hearst an outstanding member of society again? The government. It needs to be reiterated that the entire Patty Hearst kidnapping and rescue, from beginning to end, was broadcast on live television. If you're incapable of waking up to the fact that the CIA was feeding their adorable little Hearst yellow journalism drama through the big box with wire sales inhabiting everybody's home, then there's probably nothing more that I can do. Read 1984, and we'll try this again on another day. As part of the psychodrama, and during Patty's initial kidnapping, the SLA demanded that Patty's daddy, Randolph Hearst, distribute 400 million of food to hungry Californians. We are often reminded that Randolph Hearst was pressed to take out a 2 million loan, as if he didn't already have the crisp bills filling his saggy pockets. There is a reason for this seemingly small, but rarely overlooked detail. Psychologists are running this intel operation. They are in the business of forming opinions, making their ideas seem like your own. So now we have a desperate father, who must pinch his pockets and take out a loan in order to feed the poor. And the poor are ungrateful for it. It is the poor who botched the entire operation. The Hearst Corporation created a food distribution program called People in Need, immediately ordering some 2 million worth of food. As you can probably imagine, not everyone was thrilled with the idea. Government officials told the television that they were shutting the handouts, claiming it was giving in, to terrorism. California Governor Ronald Reagan, there he is again, remarked, It's just too bad we can't have an epidemic of bodilism. And then the first handouts began. In San Francisco, naturally, swarming crowds arrived, far too many for the disorganized distributors to cope with. As if we didn't see this coming. Food was thrown from the backs of lorries and from windows. Fighting soon broke out among the recipients the organizers, and the police. One police officer was stabbed. So much for charity, look everybody, at the television. We are watching a drama unfolding. There is also the SLA logo which needs dealt with. What, you didn't realize they had a logo? The SLA conveniently delivered a picture of Patty Hearst for media use, wherein she was posing like a badass in front of a red flag or banner or whatever. It depicts a ridiculous seven-headed cobra. In the picture, what was she aiming at? We are not told. If you failed to pay attention to those important details, it's okay. That's why I'm here. It's so fake, as occult symbols go, that Helen Plavatsky, if she lived, could simultaneously destroy every copy with the sarcastic pendulum swing of her eyeballs. The symbol is apparently based upon the seven principles of Kowanzi or whatever, with each head representing a principle. Don't worry, that won't be on the test. In his manifesto, DeFries wrote, Symbionese Liberation Army Declaration of Revolutionary War and the Symbionese Program. The name, Symbionese, is taken from the word symbiosis and we define its meaning as a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership in the best interests of all within the body. Ridiculous. And then there is the issue of the book itself. I have often stated that books written by Spooks become bestsellers because Spooks stock the bookstore shelves. The official narrative is so desperate to convince us that the Symbionese Liberation Army was actually a thing, let alone real, that the Wikipedia kindly included a photo of the SLA Manifesto for sale in Stockholm as late as August 2008. How adorable. In Stockholm. In the picture. I couldn't help but notice that all the magazine covers are partly tucked away except for the manifesto. Perhaps a sleuth had stashed himself in the opposite magazine rack, waiting for nobody to be around so that he could take this photo, but it is difficult to tell. Even the formation of the SLA is ridiculous. We are expected to believe that prisoners sat around reading educational pamphlets mailed out by South American-style urban guerrilla movements and the Tupamaros movement in Uruguay. Not forgetting the works of someone named Regis Debray, when the reality is that only nerds standing around at the Pentagon water cooler would ever concoct something like that. Just like the name Tanya. They needed their Patty slash Tanya her story to have an intelligent sounding origin story. And this was it. Have you ever encountered the average college age political activist? I have. I asked one when the Civil War was fought and she told me 1955. Today, ask anyone on the UC Berkeley campus to identify the number of sexes and not one will likely tell you two, 10, 50, perhaps 100 potential sexes to fill two locker rooms, but never anything as simple as two. That is because UC Berkeley is a breeding ground for government indoctrination. Students are trained in independent thinking, which is to say, Berkeley is the supplier of boxes and the ideas to fill them with. Remember how the Hearst name can be found practically everywhere on the UC Berkeley campus? I told you to bookmark that, did I not? The SLA started at Berkeley. The following quote derives from PBS American Experience in an article titled, The Rise and Fall of the Symbionese Liberation Army, wherein we read, the revolutionary Symbionese Liberation Army formed in Berkeley, California, just months before the kidnapping. Berkeley had long been America's center of radical militarism. By the early 70s, after years of protest and resistance, some fringes of the left were developing a sense of urgency. In the ever-present debate between nonviolent and violent actions, the idea of terrorism was gaining ground. I went ahead and planted a red flag for you. I hope you don't mind. The SLA was formed just months before the kidnapping. Of course they were. PBS continues, prepare for more red flags. The SLA grew out of a black inmate organization, the Black Cultural Association, active in California's Vacaville prison in the late 60s and early 70s. Coordinated by a University of California Berkeley professor, the group brought white students, including Russell Little and William Wolfe, to the prison to tutor prisoners in political science, black sociology, An African heritage. Begun as an inmate self-help group, over time the BCA became more political, largely focused on black nationalism. One black Vacaville prisoner, Donald Defries, who was serving a sentence for armed robbery, formed a splinter group, Unisite, that became the basis for the SLA. Future SLA members, Angela Atwood and Nancy Ling Perry, also visited Vacaville to meet with radical prison groups. In the eyes of the young radicals, the black prisoners, no matter what their crime, took on heroic proportions as political prisoners, oppressed by a racist and corrupt American society. There it is, the fake prison wing, Vacaville. Notice how the professor's name is nowhere mentioned. I decided to search the mystery man or woman out via internet dumpster diving and eventually discovered a certain University of California, Berkeley linguistic professor Colston Westbrook who was, according to Wiki, recruited to organize an educational tutoring system for the group. Emphasis is my own. To my great satisfaction, Wiki has a bio page on Westbrook. Are you ready for this? I hope so, because the Wikipedia delivered. Here it goes, and I quote, In a somewhat unusual path of military service, Westbrook served in the Army, then Air Force. After an assignment in South Korea, he was assigned to Travis Air Force Base in California in 1960. Upon completion of military service, he taught English at the International Christian University in Tokyo. While in Tokyo, he was recruited for a civilian position with Pacific Architects and Engineers, a U.S. government contractor in South Vietnam. He stayed with PAE five years. When a journalist later asked why he went to Vietnam, Westbrook answered, money, why else? I was told by the American embassy in Tokyo I could make 10000 working in Vietnam. They said it pays to be black in Nam. PAE was a contractor for the Central Intelligence Agency's Phoenix program, providing services including civilian cover for CIA operatives and constructing 44 province detention centers. Busted, busted, busted. They're not even trying to hide this crap anymore. The dude who started the BCA worked for the CIA. Jump back over to Wiki's Black Cultural Association page and we learn the group was intended to teach quote, mathematics, reading, writing, art, history, political science, and sociology, unquote. While quickly adding, in time, radical political organizations such as Vinceremos infiltrated the BCA. You've just read the part where they attempt to pull the wool over your eyes. Despite the fact that Colston Westbrook was a Langley spook, the government wants to make everyone think the BCA was a grassroots movement. But really, pick any grassroots movement. They want you to think such and such movement was your idea. Americans love grassroots movements, and UC Berkeley specializes in them. Meanwhile, The CIA wants you to believe they've attempted to infiltrate every grassroots movement possible. They've infiltrated Women's Lib, they've infiltrated Black Lives Matter, they've infiltrated the hippies and LGBTQ, just like the bad guys infiltrated the BCA, but that's simply not true. They want you to believe they've infiltrated the civil rights and anti-war movements when the truth of the matter is they created every mainstream social movement imaginable and then sold you on the purity of its origin. Rock and roll was not infiltrated by spooks. Rock and roll was created. The hippies were not infiltrated. The very first hippie was a spook. Even Walt Disney World was designed by the CIA. That's the ultimate slice of the apple pie right there. The American experience was created by spooks. The sad fact is, unless they scrub the Patty Hearst psychodrama from the collective consciousness via Mandela Effect or by some other means, they will need to continue pushing this lie no matter how ridiculous it seems to future generations. Or just snub it all together and hope it goes away. Kind of like the Spanish-American War which, as you will know, was the original Patty Hearst drama. There's a reason why they don't teach that fake war to us in school. We are dealing in the realm of ridiculous production value, and I am reminded of the Apollo 11 moon landing. So ridiculous. Then again, I do believe they are preparing to scrub the Apollo 11 event from our collective jargon. Perhaps they are only waiting on Buzz Aldrin to stop sealing Moonwatches and die. How will they do it? Who knows? Time will tell. But they are already dropping hints and spitting the narrative with the Falcon missions. But what about the Patty Hearst trial, you ask? The trial was faked. But what about your friend who met Patty Hearst at a Christmas party once and she seemed totally sincere and nice? Your friend was lied to. But what about that one guy who seemingly shows up in every social media discussion and is personally related to somebody from the Symbionese Liberation Army? Seriously, I can't write one of these papers without somebody on my social media's friend list claiming Uncle Ernie was there. And even though Uncle Ernie was a high-ranking Freemason, Uncle Ernie would never lie to us. And come to think of it, not everyone bought the Stockholm Syndrome plotline, choosing to give Langley's latest production poor reviews and also preferring Ronald Reagan rather than Carter for president. We are only given hints of this in the historical archives. Spooks were forced to lay all their cards on the table with their next production. A sequel which upped the ante, providing a much larger body count, and delivered the classic party line, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. After the Jonestown Massacre hoax, the elite rolled out cowboy actor and Freemason, John Wayne, to help guide the public in their indoctrination. Connecting the dots between one event and the other and then pointing out that people had accepted Jim Jones ability to brainwash 900 individuals into mass suicide, but would not accept that the Symbionese Liberation Army could have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. So apparently not everybody in 1975 was taking the bait. With Jim Jones, we shall see Colonel West making another appearance, but he is not the only person who tied the two events together. Representative Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition for Hirsch release several weeks before he was murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement in Guana. But more on that next time.